Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. That's what I think the Green New Deal has done in the most aspirational of ways, is it's created almost a positive blueprint for the future. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. In this episode, I'm talking with Brady Walkinshaw. Brady is the CEO of Grist, the legendary environmental news media outfit. I've been reading Grist for years, and it was a real treat to be able to interview the head of that operation. Brady is a smart, forward-looking leader, and he has some great ideas on how to cover climate change issues in the media. We take a deep dive on the Green New Deal. When it came out, I was encouraged by all the attention that it got and how politicians were clamoring to get behind it. Well, some of the politicians. But what really is the Green New Deal, and what are its legislative prospects? And since there are so many unknowns, it's wide open on what the Green New Deal means to the general public. There are forces at work to paint it as something negative. Brady and I talk about what narratives are being used to define the Green New Deal for better or for worse. It's an awesome conversation. Okay, I just got back from the East Coast visiting New York City and Washington, D.C. I'll have more details on that at the end of the episode, but I do want to quickly give a shout out to Leanne Spaulding and the New York City Office of Resiliency there in the mayor's office. I was invited to speak in front of that group and a couple other agencies in the mayor's office, and it was so awesome. I shared stories from that podcast, but then my overall sense of what the adaptation landscape is doing. It was a great crowd, great questions, and they are doing some amazing things in New York City. Thanks again, Leanne, for that invite. I have mentioned before, and I will mention this in every podcast, we started this resource, Podcast in the Classroom. So if you're interested in using America Adapts in your classroom for students or even professional workshops, check it out. Okay, so if your organization is interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. I just went to New York to do one. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. I have said this before, and I've been hearing from listeners that I, I would love to go to Adaptation Canada 2020. It's in Vancouver next year, but... I don't go on location unless I'm sponsored. So maybe there's some folks in Canada that want to highlight the work that they're doing up there. So yeah, reach out. I'd love to do it. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations. It's a great way to connect with all of you. They're a lot of fun for me. I share stories from the podcasts and my own experiences and adaptations and my own predictions of where we're headed. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me via the website, americadapts.org. Okay, upcoming episodes, I will be interviewing Dr. Carolyn Kowski, the Executive Director at the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Also, since I just got back from New York City, I'll be publishing that episode on urban forestry and climate adaptation in New York. And that episode is being sponsored by American Forest. That should be out in a few weeks. Also, this is great news. America Adapts is now available on Pandora Music. Just search for it on the Pandora app. Pandora is still somewhat selective on the podcast that they share through their app. And so I got on it. I'm very excited. So if you listen to music on Pandora, go ahead and listen to podcasts on it. Okay, adapters, let's get on with this and join Chris CEO, Brady Walkinshaw. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Brady Walkinshaw, the Chief Executive Officer of Grist, the environmental news outlet. Hi, Brady. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Great, great to be on. I have been a fan of Grist for many, many years, but could you give my listeners a quick summary of what Grist is all about? 
Sure. So Grist was started, gosh, almost 20 years ago now. And we were started as the first ever digitally native environmental news outlet. So this was early internet uh, to take you back. GeoCities was around, um, a lot of other things that are no longer here. But Grist was started actually as a as a way to create almost an email list, an email list about environmental news and environmental coverage, uh, initially coming out of D.C. And we started as this email list that was doing compiling newspaper clippings from different news outlets and initially had about 10 people on the email list and about 100. And 20 years later, we're reaching about two to three million people a month on our site. And we syndicate and share our content through you know over 20 other major outlets in, in, in the nation from the Guardian, to the Atlantic, uh, to the whole Gannett News Service, uh, and really create a lot of articles on everything from you know deep dive stories about impacts of air pollution and environmental justice issues in San Bernardino, which was a long feature we just did, through to um, an environmental advice column that was up for a National Magazine Award uh, called Ask Umbra, uh, which answers your favorite questions about sustainable living. And that has been the evolution of Grist. So today we're based in Seattle. We have a team of about 45 people distributed around the country. It's journalists, video producers, creative types. Increasingly, we're hosting more events about the future of the planet. And one thing I'll say about Grist is historically, we have been known for having a little bit of pizzazz and a sense of humor with our work. We've played with puns a lot. Our vision statement at the organization is that we're working for a planet that doesn't burn and a future that doesn't <laughs> suck, which is certainly something that we can probably get a rally around on for the listeners of this podcast. Oh, that's pretty good. You know, I and I know he doesn't work with you any longer, but I had David Roberts on the podcast, and I think you know his sort of perspective and his attitude. I thought captured Grist really well. I read him a long time when he was at Grist, and so yeah, I think if you kind of get a sense of who he is too, you get a sense of Grist at least when he was writing for you guys. Yeah, David's terrific, and you know he's done a lot of. I think he's doing really great coverage of of environmental politics actually right now into twenty twenty two. And I'm proud to say he's also a fellow Seattleite, even though he's at Vox now. <laughs> What's always been curious to me about Grist is that you, you cover environmental news. And how do you guys do this without really sounding too partisan? Or do you feel that's even your responsibility at this stage? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think especially in this political climate today, it's something we think about a whole lot. I, I will say I mean, at Grist, we, we're nonprofit. We don't endorse candidates, for instance, for public office, but we certainly do have a perspective. And I, I would say that perspective is that, you know, climate, climate change is real. It's happening all around us. And we as a country need to mobilize and think about the solutions that are the response to that. And as a media group, we report on, we cover, you know, different perspectives of people. We just, we, you know, we cover everything from, you know, the latest and greatest thing that happened at the EPA through to community-based stories of environmental justice leaders um, working to curb pollution or fix water quality or soil contamination in their own communities. I do think, as you've seen, I think every media outlet struggles with the increased polarization of news media and the fact that increasingly people listen to and read news outlets that align more closely with the kind of preconceptions and the worldviews that they went into it with. So, you know, those echo chambers, so to speak. So that's something we think about a lot is how is it we can kind of reach people who might not usually hear from us about the sorts of climate and environmental issues that we're reporting on outside of, you know, those, those progressive pockets in America. 
Well, I think what's been encouraging, and I think everyone will always be critical of climate coverage, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, newspapers or even on TV, you would always see on climate change, the opposing side. They would always find that kind of room and they invite some conservative environmental economist on. He's not even a climate scientist. And I think uh, the media is doing a, a much better job, at least in that respect. Well, just to build on that, I, I will say like the, the shift that we have as an organization, if we're not here to debate, you know, the reality of, of climate change and the need to adapt. What we are here, though, to do is to really explore the solution set, right? whether it's, you know, looking at everything. If you look at you know, the presidential candidates in 2020, the Democratic primary candidates who've rolled out a variety of, of approaches, some better than others. Um, if you look at the ideas being put forth in the Green New Deal, if you think about Groups, you know, efforts being pushed by things like the American Conservation Coalition, which comes from a more right wing conservative mindset and approach to conservation. What we're really interested in is thinking about what that solution set is. And then once you get into exploring the ideas that are in the solution set, we really believe that's the kind of coverage that we need to be putting a spotlight on. Yeah, my podcast. I never talk about the science really of climate change. I mean, in my universe, that's settled. And so we're just talking about adapting to it. And it's kind of kind of liberating. You don't kind of waste your time, you know, all right, trying to convince people. That's just, we've moved past that. So I want to talk about climate change coverage in general, and, I, and we're going to jump into the Green New Deal. But I'm just curious your thought as, as someone leading an environmental news outfit is that I'm hearing this kind of narrative that we only have 10 years left in regards to climate change. And I'm seeing that all over the place. It's letters to the editor, but in columns. Yeah. And you know what I'm talking about. And has Chris sort of weighed in on that? Are you using that sort of rhetoric? Do you, I mean, well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, this next weekend, I'm hosting Vershini Prakash from Sunrise in Seattle, and we're doing an event together. And I I think that that notion of pushing, you know, 10 years to decarbonize or whether it's 2030 or whether it's the positions that you hear other groups take, which is 80% decarbonization by 2050. I, I do think that if any, what I read from that is urgency. Um, and I think as a news outlet, I think we are covering a variety of different solutions, often at a very specific and technical level, often things like comparing the policy platforms that different candidates for president have put out there and thinking about which which are the boldest, you know, which which have which perspective on fracking and coal, like, you know, which have take different perspectives on investments and levels of investment in green infrastructure. So we we certainly have have weighed in on the sense of kind of assessing kind of the boldness of different perspectives and initiatives as a media outlet and as a nonprofit one. We, we do shy away from saying, you know, this is the right way to go. Certainly, journalists and writers on the team also bring their perspectives to bear. And we've had writers like Eric Holthouse, who, you know, identifies very closely with eco-socialism. And he's been a writer at Chris for a long time, who definitely have strong views about, you know, the need to decarbonize quickly for humanity and our planet. But we, we really try to keep to, to the analysis in our work. Yeah, I think you, it's, it's, you're taking a risk there. And obviously, I think climate change is an urgent issue, but when you put a number on it like that, and the, the sort of the, the language is like, we have 10 years, not they say, I mean, it really, I think is a dangerous game. And if I was like some conservative, I would put up some giant ticking thing saying, here's the 10 year time frame, here's the clock, and it's click counting down and it could just really backfire if you keep kind of using this language. And so I, I have concerns with that because it's going to make things harder. You know, it's an interesting debate. I mean, my concern with the framing of the Green New Deal, and I should say that personally, I, the ambition of it, I think, is the one of the first 
sets of solution ideas out there that I think adequately matches the scale of the problem. Um, you know, Governor Inslee, who's running for president, has said this too, that this is, you know, requires a sort of economy-wide mobilization or sort of the laser focus that it took to get to the moon. I, I think that's all very true. But where I think we've gone, where I think some of the advocates for Green New Deal may have gone wrong on messaging is I worry that we weren't quick enough or that those advocates for it were not quick enough in starting to define what the Green New Deal is and what it means. And my sense is that the risk of that is then others start to define it for you. So, for instance, you get people saying, like, you know, you can't eat hamburgers or you start to get into these these kind of fights that maybe aren't necessarily the fights you want to have. And where you actually might want to be having those fights is around, you know, <laughs> greening our energy infrastructure, where I think hey, we should incredibly quick gains over the next five years. Or, or some of these other areas you probably talk a lot about on your show where we're, we're making really rapid progress. Okay, so you've just jumped the gun. But if we could just hop right into the Green New Deal, and I also want to talk about defining the narrative around it. But if you could kind of briefly describe what is the Green New Deal, and I think probably a lot of my listeners have a general sense, but how would you just describe it if you're talking to someone on the bus? It's a really good question. The way I describe the Green New Deal on, if I was talking to someone on the bus and you know we were between stops, <laughs> would be that <laughs> the, the Green New Deal is a bold blueprint that says for humans to thrive and for us to have a thriving economy and future on, in this country and for the planet that we need to take bold action on climate change. And I would say that the Green New Deal is a blueprint for that. And I would say that in addition to that, it also different. This is a little bit if we had a couple bus stops, I would say in contrast <laughs> to the past, a lot of the way that we've talked about climate change in the narrative has been more about doom and gloom and sort of been, gosh, like here are the horrible things that are going to happen when wildfires intensify and when sea level rises and we're going to see this extraordinary biodiversity loss. All those things are true, right? But I think what it's done is that it's created this notion kind of publicly and in the dialogue that, that addressing climate change and tackling the severity of the problem is about trade-offs. And I think that when you get into this mindset that it's about trade-offs, and certainly there are trade-offs, right? When you get into this mindset, however, that there are trade-offs, uh, it takes away from the idea, which I believe that I believe humans can really thrive in a post-carbon economy, that I believe that humans can really create a society that is more just and fair, healthier and happier when you look at decarbonization. And that's what I think the Green New Deal has done in the most aspirational of ways, is it's created almost a positive blueprint for the future in at a time when so many of us have looked at climate storytelling, you know, very much in the spirit of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, or even Dave Wallace-Wells, who's a friend who I really like in his Uninhabitable Earth. Those are more narratives of kind of trade-off and struggle, which, by the way, will and is happening. But I think presenting a positive blueprint of the future is important. You know, I'm supposed to actually have David on next month. Looking forward to that, talking about his book. Oh, that's great. Okay, so the Green New Deal, and I'm just imagining the the, the meeting room at Grist, and you probably all work remotely anyway, but I mean, just how did this unfold there at Grist? This must have been all hands on deck. This was really a big deal, I'm sure, for you guys. You know, it's it's very exciting when you see an issue that you've been working on for almost 20 years as an organization, and have had a lot of people writing about the issue, and then suddenly, in, in the matter of probably less than a year, you've seen Iowa voters start, Iowa Democratic primary voters start to say that climate change along with healthcare is the top issue that 
that they're thinking about. Or when you start to see just what you've described, suddenly this idea of the Green New Deal being being put out there in public is a rallying cry and seeing, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousands of young people coming out and saying we need to act. But what you asked the question, I just don't want to lose it. You asked kind of what is the Green New Deal? And when you when you look at it, I mean, there are a set of policy pieces that it, that it speaks to. And I, I would say that the main, the kind of main pieces of those are these ideas that we need to move to 100% you know, national power generation from renewables. We need to think about building an energy smart grid. We need to decarbonize and create incredible strides in building efficiency. We need to look at the way we produce food and manufacturing. I mean, you get you get sort of the set of things that that land on this idea that it requires massive public investment and a set of policy decisions. So th- that's what I do think it starts to boil down to. And that's what you saw in the resolution that Senator Markey and, and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez brought forward. And some of those same elements are what you're seeing picked up in people's presidential plans from what Governor Inslee has called his evergreen economy plan or, you know, looking at what what, what Vice President Biden or, or Warren's green manufacturing effort or you know, those different ideas that, that candidates have come forward with. And is someone like pounding out in your window or something? Oh, God. That actually, that actually, I can't do anything about it. Right, no, no, you have no control. Out. I just wanted to make sure it sounded like a cup or something. Like, all right. It's no, actually funny you say that. There, you know, in Seattle, we've had this thing called the Viaduct, which is this huge, I look, I'm right on the water, and they're tearing down a freeway in front of me. So um, that's what you're hearing. Oh, I'm keeping this in. This is perfect. Okay. Let's get back. back. You know, I'm just very curious about that whole dynamic. Though. I'm thinking of the Gris newsroom and were there any sort of skeptical voices about the Green New Deal? And of course, not the notion of like, you know, we need to do something in climate change, but was there a real, I mean, as you guys kind of really decided, how are you going to cover that? Did you have those conversations that it unfold that way? You know, that's whether there's skepticism. I mean, I think, Look, I think that the skepticism is more around what's the the value of putting forward something that's extraordinarily that's perceived as I should say perceived as extraordinarily aspirational if you don't think it's practical. And I I think that that idea is is not a, just a debate we might be having, but I think that's a debate that you find in large environmental organizations. I think that's debate a debate you find in the Democratic Party. I think that's a debate you find um, amongst a lot of people who are wondering whether it's, is it good to say that, you know, if we don't, it's your original question, is it good to say that we need to, we have 10 to 12 years to decarbonize to avert what is a pretty existential threat or, or are we, are we more on this continuum of being able to think that we have more time or that we can take more practical steps and I think that's that's the debate, I think, is around kind of like the practicality of what it would look like to decarbonize if you actually get into the into the weeds of it, of what it would look like to do over 12 years. Right. And as you as you know, probably better than me, because you work on so much of the policy, it would be pretty radical. Right. To to look at how we bring our carbon emissions down by that extent over such a short period. I mean, it would have dramatic effects on air travel. It would have dramatic effects on on meat consumption. And, and that list goes on. Yeah, and I, I like you know, also to think on the flip side, it'd be pretty radical not to respond to what's coming with climate change. And yet we still can't kind of get in that mindset that it's it's this radical thing not to be going off you know, the full steam ahead. But that's just how it is, I guess, human nature. Well, see, that's where I really agree with you. And, like, and that's where I, I think it's important to 
like our mission, our mission statement at Christ is to make the story of a better future so irresistible that you want it right now. And I think that's a very different idea than talking about the trade-offs and kind of the, the, the harm that will be carried by climate change. And it's not to say that we're not going to see, you know, more variable crop harvests that are going to have impacts on global food production and, you know, lead to even certain crops having, you know, less nutrients. And it's not to say we're not going to see forced migrations because of climate, and that those will be really horrible. Like, I, those those things will happen to a certain extent, but I I also think that that there's a story to be told here of when people you know if if our food system winds up creating a lot more plant based proteins in the food supply and we eat more plant based you know meat alternatives that happens to be higher in protein lower sodium and healthier for people and maybe we'll see lower risks of heart disease so I I think that there are a lot of upsides to what a future can look like in a low carbon economy that I think are also really important to talk about because I think that future actually is very desirable. Yeah. I, I like that. Focusing on food would be great. Although I do, I do hate those stories that come out. They talk about, Oh, climate change impact on the wine industry. And I'm just like, Oh my <laughs> gosh, <laughs> like, wow. Keep this in the elite circles. All right. So the green new deal, I actually thought it got a lot of great coverage. You know, it got a lot of awareness showing up on Fox News and obviously for negative reasons. But what's happening now? Like who's actually running with it? Who's keeping it alive? And I imagine the the presidential campaign will be a nice vehicle to keep it alive. But what's happening with it? Well, I mean, if you just take a step back, I mean, isn't it amazing that we're we're seeing – I personally find the debate that's happening right now to be fascinating where you've had Tom Perez – at the DN at the Democratic National Committee, kind of turned down this request for a climate-focused debate, and the the rationale that he's put forward has been that they don't want to do single-issue debates. First of all, and then the second most recent rationale that the DNC put forward was that they thought that it would unfairly. Be- this one was totally ludicrous to me that it would unfairly benefit candidates who were running on a climate platform. Which, first of all, if you take a step back and and start with kind of the premise, I think that that I have and perhaps you have as well, that this this is not a single issue. I mean, if you look at what this means, it it has extraordinary impacts on everything from our health systems, our infrastructure, our transportation systems, to our economy, to our national security, to our food supply, to, you know, our trade agreements with foreign countries, we're looking at an issue that is that is not a single issue. And I, I think that, that moving beyond that framing will be very important. So when you ask what keeps the Green New Deal alive and in the discussion, I think in some ways it's like taking it out of just being an environmental issue. And it's, it's how is it that we elevate it and say, you know, Green New Deal is a blueprint. It's a frame. There are other ways of talking about this too, but um. We we certainly, as a country, should be recognizing that this is is not just like any other thing. This is this is something of existential proportions that we ought to be having a focused conversation about. So I I've found that specific debate interesting, um, and maybe we could talk about it more, or we could go in a different direction. Well, yeah, I just in regards to that the the debate. You know, just missing a huge opportunity. And yet again, the Democrats sort of undercutting their own big positions because they're worried about what a few people in Pennsylvania coal country are going to think about this. And instead of just seizing the moment for leadership, yeah, that's very frustrating. On that note, Republicans, and I, and I, I, 
I wanted to sort of, as you, you're nonpartisan, you're nonprofit, but we've we've had we're in this new territory now where the Republicans in no way are going to be helpful on this. And I was trying to think on what's next congressionally for the Green New Deal. And I look back on Obamacare, you know, the Affordable Care Act, and people don't remember, but they took a long time with that, and uh, and they actually worked with Senator Susan Collins, she's a Republican out of Maine, and she actually they interacted with her for like, I think it was like a year, like 10 months, getting her feedback, trying to get her involvement in with that. And she worked very closely. But then at the end of the day, last minute, she doesn't vote for it. And all that effort to try to collaborate with someone on the in the Republican Party, just it didn't go anywhere. And so, I mean, is there any value whatsoever in trying to make this a bipartisan issue? It's a really good question. And I think you have a lot, and I'm honestly conflicted on it. I I, th- I guess it's it's yes to both. I think this should be a bipartisan issue. And I think there may also come times when we just need to act. And I, I actually, I mean, you, you know, I used to be a state legislator. So I spent several years in the state legislature in Washington State. And I remember one of the first, I was in my mid-20s, one of the first thing I did when I was, was appointed actually to the state legislature was that I kind of jumped in my car and I drove across to the Cascades in Washington State to the east side of the mountains, which are the more conservative area. Uh, and my whole goal here was to like try to visit with people who are on the other side of the aisle and like break bread and get to know people and meet them in their homes. And, you know, and maybe maybe that was a kind of a naive notion. But what I what I discovered over a few years in, in, in state level office, and I think it's different, more polarized in D.C., is that there are certain issues where you can really work together. And then there are certain issues where uh, it does become more partisan for a set of reasons. And in when we look at, say, policies that are being proposed under the Green New Deal frame, I definitely think that there are things that can be done together. And examples of that are clean energy. And we could spend time on that. But I think there's so much progress and, and so many constituencies you know, of, all, of all political stripes that now have invested in and have vested interest and are consumers who are seeing benefits from things like dropping solar prices in West Virginia or, you know, pick your, pick your state and your alternative energy source. But uh, I think that on energy, we can make, we can make progress. Another area I think we can make progress together is, is conservation issues. And, you know, there's so much literature out there now, and we already know the impacts of, of the abilities for forests to capture carbon. And, I think there are a lot of kind of land management. I think there are a lot of land management and conservation, and I would say natural resource management broadly, approaches to to decarbonizing and and carbon capture that can be bipartisan. So, uh, long story short, is I, I think there are a number of areas where we really can make progress together, and we should be pushing for that. Caveat being, you know, oh, before the caveat, I'll stop. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, I'll be your caveat, and just you know, I yeah. I get Lucy and I get Charlie Brown, and the Democrats are just Charlie Brown, and yeah. you know, it's just you need to pull the trigger sometimes. And okay, so on that note, and with the Green New Deal, I actually didn't read the resolution at first. Obviously, getting ready for this episode, I did a lot more homework, and I kind of dismissed it a little bit, at not, and not dismissed the, the notion behind it, but I focus on adaptation. How are we going to adapt to climate change? So like, right. ah, the Green New Deal is not really doing that, but actually, there's quite a bit of language associated with it. I mean, so what's your, your take on the Green New Deal and uh, climate adaptation? Oh, I, I will. I actually, there's a lot in there about adaptation. I, I was going to say one last thing on the last point at the risk of diving back in was, uh, I, look, I, I do think 
that you have certain candidates in, in the Democratic presidential primary who are arguing for things like abolishing the filibuster, which is this really important structural thing that I, I think would have to be done in order to take the kinds of action that we need to at the scale we have to, given the problem we face. So I do think there's also an acknowledgement that certain things will be really hard to do together, but need to happen. And I, I do think that the, the filibuster is, is one of those pieces that, that I, I support. I personally support that position, but I think that that is one of the one of the actions that I think will help us move quickly on climate action. So that was my closing thought, um, but I'm happy to, to, to kind of dive over into adaptation. Right. So in, in, thoughts on that. Do you, do you feel like it takes a nice crack at, at dealing with the resilience and adaptation? I do. And I'd be curious. I mean, I'd be curious what your reflections were on it, maybe two in conversation, but I, I think there, there are a lot of the infrastructure investments I think are adaptation investments I, I think that a lot of the, the kind of retrofitting of buildings and clean energy, I mean, the elements around building efficiency have adaptation elements. I, I also look at, you know, a lot of what a lot of that spending, as you've also looked at some of the, the presidential candidate plans that have put, I think, a little bit more meat on the bones of some of these policies. A lot of that has also been geared around, you know, at risk areas to natural disaster where you're seeing increased threats to natural disaster. And I think there is a real focus and a belief in adaptation spending in that in that area too. So I, I do think that there's definitely an, an adaptation component to it. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, after reading it, it to me, I, I've had experience working for the federal government and state government. And un, until you see actual dollars like like budgets associated with whatever you're doing, you know that people aren't really taking it seriously. And so this is a resolution. It has just some guidance and such. And so if it manages to get or we're passing legislation and we're tying appropriations to it, that's when we can really assess if it means something. And, you know, you would think like, a, let's say a big infrastructure bill, you could probably, you know, attach a lot of adaptation funding in there. And if they did that, great. But until you see budgets align with it, you, you can really kind of get a sense of what's a priority. You know, when you see these executive orders come out and they're not aligned with any new money, like I, I was a bureaucrat in DC and it's just like, all right, you go through the motions, you make sure the political appointees seem to think you're doing something. But if they're not assigning money to it, it's just like you, you can't embed it. And it's not because you're trying to keep it from happening. It's just, it's, it's aspirational, all those executive orders. Yeah, no, I think that's wise. I, <laughs> I agree. Having also had a little experience in government too, I think that, you know, once, once you get to appropriations, it, the, the budget is a reflection of your values. Exactly. Okay. So at Grist, I'm, I mean, I've dug around a lot, and but you obviously have a long history of climate stories, but is there sort of a strategic nature of your coverage of adaptation at Grist when you do news coverage? You know, I, it's a good question. I, well, we think about adaptation a lot, and we, we've worked on adaptation in different ways. There's this really terrific, awesome young video producer at Chris named Jesse Nichols, who's been doing more looking at how cities have, have rebuilt infrastructure in the wake of natural disasters to adapt to climate. And just did this really cool kind of extended piece on Hoboken, New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy. So I, I think that a number of people have been working on some of these pieces. We've actually been doing a lot of kind of post-Maria, and we've been a lot of reconstruction work and coverage on, on what's been happening with the energy grid in, in Puerto Rico post-hurricane to think about the adaptation work that's happening there. 
we've covered sea level rise in different ways for a long time. And we've, we've touched on different themes from sea level rise that, that certainly relate to adaptation. I mean, I'm just looking at the, I'm looking at the homepage that we have up on the, up on a, on the cover of our site right now. And some of it isn't adaptation. Like there's, there's a piece we just posted saying is, is geoengineering the answer to cl- the climate crisis but then some of it, some of it does, and that's a great, that's another conversation. But I, I think some of it has also been looking at, at adaptation. For instance, we just did this long piece on uh, Senator Warren's newest climate proposal and how it had, you know, strong relationship to the investments that were made in the Marshall Plan in terms of reconstruction, uh, and a lot of those ideas have been around adaptation. So I, I guess I'd just say that it's it's a mix. Um, maybe I can ask you: Do you do you feel like there are certain coverage areas that lend themselves best to adaptation coverage and storytelling? Oh well, I mean, it's kind of a shame, but you know, sort of disaster uh, response is is just a way to go. When because like what happens afterwards, and then you've got maybe some money flooding in, and they build in adaptation planning into that. And w- what I find is, I think it's getting much better. But like a lot of even news outfits like they didn't really know how to decouple uh, mitigation you know the energy carbon side with adaptation you know there was a lot of sort of blending and i think it's kind of confusing for folks and of course it all falls under climate change and you want to kind of be uh proactive on both but it, with this podcast since i emphasize adaptation what it's it's been quite a journey and what i find and i'm hoping that this will happen is that mitigation might actually be easier if we really start kind of penetrating into the public what adapting to climate change really means. And that, you know, one part of it will ultimately be like, we need to lower our carbon footprint, but look at all these other things that are baked in for, you know, decades, if not hundreds of years. And I've heard from listeners where they've let me know that, you know, it's just the proactive nature, the stories that they're hearing, they're like, you know what, it's really appealed to me. And then they go do things that are associated with like, you know, reducing their carbon footprint, which I, I, I think there's something there as we really rolling up your sleeves and we're adapting to climate change. And I think there's an opportunity. I'd love to see some media outfits really kind of make a push on that. Do you, do you feel like, and I have a thought on that too, but do you feel like, um, I mean, when you think about adaptation, do you feel like there are some really big innovations out there? Or do you feel like it's often, I mean, I could imagine this kind of post reconstruction, these post reconstruction opportunities, kind of urban, just, I mean, I'm looking out at our seawall right now in Seattle and Elliott Bay from my office and, you know, there's that seawall is being rebuilt in a way right now that that is has adaptation in mind. So you see a lot of those sorts of investments tied into adaptation. Uh, but do you feel like the kind of behavior change side of it is an area where there's a lot of conversation? Well, I, I think it, it just depends, especially, you know, there, it, there's all these different climate impacts and some of them get a bit more traction than others. Um, I was just I gave a presentation where I described sea level rise as like the charismatic megafauna of climate impacts, you know, because mm. you can kind of get your head around it. It's going to flood. It's like, <laughs> and when you think I of like that, yeah. Uh, and I it was at a historic preservation conference and I was just telling them that, you know, the, these historic buildings are the charismatic megafauna of the built environment. And you need, uh-huh. need to kind of start thinking like that. And so I think it all depends. A lot of really innovative stuff is happening with sea level rise. But when you think about drought and, you know, like agriculture, it's just like, it's more subtle. It's like, really, what's the climate fingerprint here? And it gets, it gets a little bit trickier, but with sea level rise, you can get maps. You can say, what does four feet of sea level level rise really mean? And so I just think there's a lot of energy when you go to the East coast, New York, all the way down to Florida, it's just like 
people to really start, you know, they're doing some modeling, they're doing some really interesting work, they're, they're changing things. And, and the investment is just a fraction of what it needs to be. But if you are in that space and hearing what's kind of going, I'm actually going to be talking with the uh, New York Mayor's Office of Resiliency next week. And, um, you know, I think they're still looking, you know, they got a lot of money after Hurricane Sandy. And I think they're, they have this luxury of actually being well-funded compared to a lot of groups. But I still think they're like, you know, what do we do here? And adaptation is still this emerging issue. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I used to work earlier in my career, I worked at the Gates Foundation um, for a while. And th- there was and actually a lot in agriculture. And, you know, there's there are so many. We cover this a fair bit at, at Chris. We have this really terrific writer uh, named Nathaniel, Nate Johnson, uh, who covers most of our food, who does a lot of our food coverage. And Nate's written a fair bit around crop science and adaptation on the technology side to climate from the from the perspective of both you know everything from like soil changing soil fertility patterns to you know soil carbon capture to thinking about crop science in ways that you're you know everything from seed technology you know through the gambit on on ways that our food system adapts i i'm kind of i'm a little bit more i guess on that area of adaptation i'm a little bit more consumer my hope is more in consumers and I, I just think at some point we will need to, to evolve our, our diets pretty significantly and adapt, I should say, adapt our diets pretty significantly. And that's driven by policy. It's driven by a number of things, but I think we're going to have to see some dietary shifts. Okay. So let me just put a little, uh, <laughs> my thoughts into the, the CEO of Grist year about coverage of um, adaptation and climate change in general is that you hear the word resilience a lot, right? That's really just right. a, a great buzzword. And what people in the natural resource sector, and that was my background originally, are concerned about, because they were the first ones doing adaptation 15 years ago as the natural resource people, that as the built environment responds and really starts to think about climate proofing, like New York City is a perfect example, they are going to build seawalls. Like you just said, I think you said outside your window, there's buildings. Yeah, there's a seawall construction project. And but the seawall, although there's an immediate sort of protection of what it's there, but it's like what happens just north or south of it? Like the natural systems are just going to get slammed, and this whole notion of resilience is giving the public this false assurance that you can kind of climate-proof everything. And that's in it's. I get it. That's a natural reaction. The government wants to make sure people are safe and all that. But with adaptation, you lend yourself to like you know what we might have to do managed retreat from the coast. And when you focus so much on resilience, you give the the public this false assurance that we can deal with this we can build a seawall around anything and uh, i hope the media really starts to kind of dig into that it's like no the, the there are going to be some tough decisions and it's not just about because you think you're going to do a story oh look they built a seawall that's they're doing good at it no not necessarily well just picking up on that thread just a very specific example i've been thinking about is last week i did this I did a tv an interview with our commissioner of public lands in Washington state who under her kind of portfolio is the management of wildfires, right? Which, uh, you know, Washington state has already declared a drought, you know, snowpack is already low and, and so forth. And we're in a, already we have several thousand acres under fire. And one of the real issues in adaptation there is just this very controversial question of, should we continue to build in these places? You know, be they, be they super expensive vacation homes and some, you know, up some remote stream that has a very high risk of fire danger um, through to sort of expansion of, of, of rural towns and so forth. So I, I think this development question in Washington state is a very real one. And then should there be those hard trade-off decisions made around, you know, building places where it puts the lives of firefighters at risk, it 
you know, for a whole number of reasons, uh, one could argue that we should adapt. Yeah. And, you know, in a, in a rational society, and maybe you see a little bit more of this in Europe, it's just like, you know, the, the insurance market and sort of regulatory zoning would just discourage it starting 10 years ago. But mm-hmm. it's, as we know, zoning is set by real estate developers who run for local office. And yeah, it's not easy. Right. And Miami, Miami real estate is the poster child for so much of that right now. It's interesting to kind of, it's interesting to price the resiliency, to use it in a different way, the resiliency of real estate prices in Miami. Um, But that too is starting to change. Yeah. Miami is an interesting case study that they are doing some awesome work on sea level rise, a lot of integration between government entities around adaptation planning, all things that you you want them to do. But then for those of us who kind of get stepped back, you're just, you look at Miami, you look at the geology under Miami, you're just like, (laughs) guys are going to have to leave. Um, It's it's, right. Some of the most innovative like work on on climate proofing, probably as you you say, uh, that's happening anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, but there's still in denial of like you can't build a seawall around Miami. That you can around New York, you can around Miami. So it's just we'll see what they're going to do. They'll spend a lot of money to try to protect it. So all right, so let me. I wanted to go back a little bit about narrative setting. You alluded to it earlier, and, and I, I I just obsessed over this, like how you like create a narrative around an issue and getting people to kind of. To think about this issue, and and I think Republicans have been so great, like defining their own narrative or defining our narratives, be it Obamacare and now the Green New Deal. And I, I think the Green New Deal has actually survived a lot of the onslaught. I, I could be naive about that, but they could still. Oh, it's just you know, it's it's socialism or whatever. But I think again. And when I read the Green New Deal, all this issue, all the things associated with equity, and they even have like providing people with high quality health care. These are all issues personally I want to see our government cover, but like embedded in the Green New Deal, they're setting up so many competing narratives. I mean, it just concerns me. So you're just to ask, so your concern is that within the Green New Deal, from a narrative perspective, what you're perceiving, what you're seeing is you feel like it, it's a, trying to address so many issues beyond just climate change. Right. It's just a bad movie with like 80 subplots, you know, and keep it simple. And uh, that it's it's not a simple narrative. And when you don't have a simple narrative, I guess back to my original point, the Republicans come along and they are very skilled at setting a very simple narrative. No, I think that's right. I mean, you can boil it that, you know, it, it can make it, it, it can be made about hamburgers or it can be made about help. It can be made as, you know, seen as everything under the sun. I, I think a couple of things in my mind have happened there is that over the last, I would just say even over the last couple months, I think we've seen more um, specifics start to, to be established. And I think one of the main vehicles for that has actually been these, these plans that you've started to see candidates for president start to roll out. And I think these plans actually contain a lot of specifics that, that in my mind, hopefully um, start to, to kind of diffuse kind of this idea that, that this is about everything. Um, but if you start to look at what different people are bringing forward from, you know, public lands protections to, you know, investments in green infrastructure, these, these different sorts of specifics, I think help to define it. So I would, my, my feeling has been the quicker, the quicker from a narrative perspective, you can move to, to saying what you think, the better it will be on this is my, has been my feeling. And I, I think that's starting to happen. 
You know, I, I had you familiar Jeff Goodell, is a writer from Rolling Stone um, magazine. He's been on the podcast a couple times, and we we're having this conversation about this unique window of the presidential campaign where climate change is actually like a major issue and think about this rare opportunity because you know those campaigns they bring in polling people they bring in all these experts in communications and they're going to start poll testing all these issues and you know that information would be so useful to, to environmental groups even after the fact maybe even after the election but it's just this rare window of like people putting a lot of communication brain power into the issue of climate change let's take advantage of that yeah, we're in a really unique, I mean, this is, I, I have these three reasons why I think we're at this extraordinarily unique point for progress. One is that I think that for the first time in many, many years, we have demand where we have, whether that demand is coming from the market for more clean energy, whether that demand is coming from social movements and youth like Sunrise who are, who are just demanding change in action. So one is I think we have demand like we've never had. The second feeling I have is that we've had this sort of supply that we've never had, which that supply has been in the form of technologies that are now at a price point on energy that you know can be scaled at market. That supply is around policies. Like we're seeing this extraordinary supply of policy ideas coming out of the presidential forums. And we're also seeing that come out of ideas like the Green New Deal. So suddenly we have the supply. And then the last piece I think we have is this this really interesting, to your point, this really interesting, unique political moment, which really extends over the next couple of years. I mean, into the into the presidential in 2020, down ballot races, and then depending on what happens in 2020, into the next, you know, the first year of the next administration. And if you if you play this back and kind of rewind this this saga. It happened a bit in 2007 when you had a lot of people running and talking about climate. You even had John McCain talking about climate as a national security threat, which was a position that you know many who had that view uh, in the in the Senate then rolled back. But but he was pub- he publicly shared that perspective, and you created the space for climate right. Which then, when you know the, the first 2010 Obama administration, we failed on cap and trade for a bunch of reasons, but. I, I think we have another one of those windows where where hopefully we can put forward a set of policies. And I will say what I'm really encouraged by this year is that these plans that people are putting forward about the environment, they're not pinning all their hopes on, on one big idea like a carbon trading system or a carbon tax or, or one, one policy vehicle. If you look at Green New Deal or some of these other plans that are being put out, they're, they're much more far reaching than that. What's next for Grist? If if people want to kind of dive into your, your coverage, what are some of the big stories and what are some of the ways that they can kind of beyond just going to your website to kind of follow what you're doing there? Oh, sure. That's a great question. So, you know, we, we organize we organize our work in a bunch of different thematic areas. We produce a lot of great video. We do have this wonderful environmental advice column that called Ask Umbra, which I encourage you to follow and Ask Umbra asks several questions, responds to reader-generated questions. One of the most recent ones I'm just seeing was, can we shrink our carbon footprints by working less? Uh, so we, we talked through that question, and that definitely speaks to the adaptation piece you were bringing up before. We do some deep dive ex- stories uh, that come out pretty frequently. And one of the most recent ones that I was really excited about was one of our writers named Justine Kalma who's based in New York, but actually grew up in San Bernardino County, did this really deeply reported story that she was then on maybe 10, 12 radio shows talking about over the last couple of weeks 
that was looking at the environmental impacts of e-commerce and these huge, huge storage warehouses for internet, you know, internet goods that we're buying on Amazon or, or Walmart or wherever it is, and and what the impacts of those distribution centers have on on the environments around them. And she she worked with a lot of women, particularly in the community who were who are organizing against some of these efforts and looking at the environmental health impacts. So we. We've really been doing a lot more, I would say, around environmental justice at Grist and, and thinking about how low-income communities, brown and black communities, communities who have less le- the least in this country are being hit hardest. That's something we've really gone into deep. And if it's something you want to learn more about, would really encourage you to, to read, our, read our work. Okay, so you've teed me up very nicely with that story about equity that she worked on. Does Grist have a podcast? It's my understanding you don't. I looked around, but I didn't see one. Okay, and, and then I, the next question was, why not? Well, that's a great one. We, we are actually talking about it later today. Um, so <laughs> really? We've thought about this for a long time, and you probably have some great advice for us, and we'd love your advice. We've been thinking about trying to do some collaborations where we have some branded podcasts that we – we do with some other partners, uh, but it's definitely something that's been on our mind and we just have not done it. So I, I've been of the perspective that it would be super cool to do. And, and at least with our audience, I think there'd be some eager listeners. Okay. So here's some uh, probably unrequested advice. You guys are, you know, not like some huge outfit. You would be a great podcast host, but at the same time, my advice is like not necessarily the highest up in the food chain actually being the host because you, you find you're a bit more diplomatic than you might be if you were sort of in the middle. And you, you some a group like Grist, you guys have some attitude. You have a perspective and a personality, and you want to bring that to whoever's hosting that podcast. And so think about that, you know, and your staff within Grist, but just that that's some kind of <laughs> some advice on it wouldn't, it wouldn't be me. <laughs> oh, okay. You're probably too busy, but I mean, I've dealt with like big, you know, nonprofits and sometimes this, you know, the president see it and you just like, it's, oh, you're going to take the life out of it and the comm shops gets involved and they take the life out of it. And you really yeah. need to let it grow and be organic <laughs> if you want that, that advice. That is good advice. And again, here, I look at. I mean, I have surprisingly, I wasn't haven't been subscribed to your newsletter recently, but I, I've been looking around, and not many people. In fact, there's only been one or two. Is that in these news roundups? You know, sometimes you include articles that you guys write, but maybe other articles, and there'll be webinars or conferences. And do you guys promote other podcasts because people aren't giving climate podcasts enough? Do and climate nexus. I, I was working with them a little bit. And they started including climate podcast, and it's beyond just me. There's other ones where you include that as part of these sources of news. And I just encourage you to find a space for that at Gris because you know there is some deep dives into some of these topics. It's a terrific idea. I will um I will suggest that at our at our management meeting that we have in six minutes and uh, share your <laughs> share your advice. I think it's a Here's my last question, and I ask this of every guest that comes on the podcast. If you could recommend someone to come on the podcast, who would it be? You know, I was just thinking about that. I, it's funny enough because I just saw him, and you said you already have him coming next month. I, I think that uh, Dave Wallace Wells is terrific, and I, I think it's an interesting – he brings up this sort of interesting debate where should we be doing more kind of deep kind of – solutions-oriented storytelling, or should we really be grappling with the gravity of what, you know, he, he writes about that is coming? 
and how radically different, you know, if you read Uninhabitable Earth, how radically different like our futures will look. So I, I think he's, he's great. I think he's very provocative. You know, you could also, I think it would be interesting just because it's a nice time to do it. I could imagine you could get some, some, I don't know if you get people running for president right now, but I could imagine folks in and around the Green New Deal would actually be really interesting to bring, to bring on. And one, one source I might suggest is we published this annual list called the Grist 50, which is 50 emerging leaders in justice, environment, and sustainability. And it's a really amazing, terrific group of people who we then bring together in person for gatherings. And you might check out that list because I think there are some, some really amazing entrepreneurs, activists, political leaders uh, who we feature in it. Some great suggestions. And with David, I, I had my work cut out for me because I, I, I actually was kind of standoffish at first because I'm like, oh, this book is just kind of comes on me like a ton of bricks. How do I have a podcast conversation where I'm not depressing all my listeners? And so I, I, I want to approach that in a productive way, but I, I'm sure we will. But that uh, uh, should be fun. Well, Brady, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thanks for all the work that you're doing at Grist. Again, I'm a huge fan of what you guys do. Thank you so much. It was really fun to be on. And uh, I'm, I'm going to become a regular listener of America Adapt. So thank you. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Brady for coming on the podcast. Please check out some of the, the links in my show notes to stories that Brady mentioned in our conversation. I hope you learned a bit more about the Green New Deal. And no matter how good it is or whatever its flaws, there are forces at work to define it for better or for worse. I hope the media can cover it in an honest way that best serves the public. And I hope Brady gets a podcast or two started over at Grist. They are really a perfect outfit to use this medium. Okay, some final housekeeping. So I mentioned earlier, I just got back from New York City and I was doing an urban forestry and climate adaptation episode. What a grand adventure. American Forest is sponsoring this episode. It should be out in a few weeks and I'll have more on the backstory then, but just a quick shout out to my host in New York. I worked with the U.S. Forest Service, the Natural Areas Conservancy, and the New York City Parks Department. These people were organized. They took me all over the city. We got to record in Central Park. Pelham Park, and we went into the urban forest there. They organized this army of experts that just kind of were coming through, and I was interviewing folks on these short interviews, and it was just all very organized. I'm not used to that, having such a team of people supporting it. And thanks to Caitlin for making this all come together. I was getting whiplash from the diversity of people that were kind of walking in through the door. So looking forward to sharing that. New York is doing some great work, and they have a great story to tell. Also, thanks to Ian at American Forest and their president, Chad Daly, for hosting me for my final interviews of that episode in Washington, D.C. Also, while in New York City, I got to meet my new intern, Madeline Zeef. What a coincidence, I went somewhere I could meet her in person. She joined me on some of my interviews and for my talk at the Mayor's Office of Resiliency. And I also got to meet my website designer and logo creator, Sarah Wessler. I met up with Sarah and her visiting family at a French vegan restaurant. Ah, yes, only in New York could we have a French vegan restaurant. It was great to meet you in person, Sarah. Thank you for what you've been doing with the podcast. I have so many people out there helping me out, volunteering, and most of them I actually never get to meet. So this was a real treat. And thanks, Sarah, for letting me and my wife crash your dinner. And thanks for all the amazing work that you do. And I have to add, when you're at a French vegan restaurant, I I was there and I ordered a cafe latte and they asked what milk did I want to use. And like some ignoramus, I said whole milk. Nice work, Doug. Okay. Also on New York, I went to the kickoff event for this massive managed retreat conference that Columbia was hosting. Thanks to Jesse Keenan for getting me a last-minute invite. 
It was a real bummer that I could only attend the kickoff event. It just overlapped completely with my recording on the Urban Forestry episode. Got to see some familiar faces, though, and I'm sure I'll be doing a managed retreat theme episode in the near future. And I got to eat a great Peruvian Chinese meal with Jesse and his wife. Great times in New York City. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. We have some insider conversations. I share some more personal things on the community side, but also uh, sign up for the page too. I'm also on Instagram at America underscore Adapts and Twitter at USA Adapts. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week. Reach out. Sometimes it leads to some really cool things. So I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. And don't forget, America Daps is a nonprofit organization. We count on your support. There's a We Did It donate page. It's tax deductible. Please consider it. Think about donating on a recurring basis. $5, what you pay for a cafe latte, even if it's a vegan one. Once a month, you could be doing a recurring donation. It would be greatly appreciated. It gives me the flexibility to do all these things and bring this wonderful content to you. So please consider that. The uh, donate page is in the show notes. Okay, check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information, again, is down in the show notes. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.